You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Okay, we are recording. So with me is Douglas Edwards of Utica College, right? Yep, that's right. Yep, and you are the author of a book that came out in the United States on June 26th. The book is called Philosophy Smackdown, which is a book about philosophy and professional wrestling. So there it is. Oh, good. You have the physical copy. I, copy with me, yeah. <laughs> I have the Kindle version and I couldn't figure out how to, how to show that. So good. That beats it. Um, so let me just start kind of way before the book, which is why do you like professional wrestling? You're a philosopher. Why would you like something like this? Uh, well, I think like my my interest in wrestling kind of predates my interest in philosophy for quite for quite a long time. I think a lot of it is kind of, you know, when I was a kid, um, me and my brother and me and my friends used to watch a lot of it, and it became like some a significant part of my childhood. Um, and even though like over the years I kind of came in and out of watching it, it was always something that was kind of I don't know always there in the background even at times when I wasn't watching it just like yeah it was just kind of something that I was always thinking a lot about and then yeah when I I think when I started doing philosophy I didn't really think much about the connections between the two for quite a long time and then it was only really this this year or well no not this year a couple of years ago when I started writing the book that I kind of thought I'd been spending a lot of time, you know, watching wrestling and listening to podcasts and stuff. And it occurred to me that a lot of the reasons why people are interested in wrestling, like especially the different fan perspectives, which is so varied and fascinating, are kind of, it's because of questions that are quite similar to what philosophers are interested in, to some extent, like the distinction between appearance and reality, the distinction between the real person and the character or the gimmick. Um, issues about you know who's who's able to act kind of freely and who's kind of constrained by scripts and stuff and and I first just thought like oh this would be I'd really like to write or read more about this or write something about it and I never actually seriously thought that it was going to happen until yeah I kind of talked to work talked to a publisher I'd worked with before and they were kind of into the idea but um yeah what is it about wrestling I like it's hard for me to to state succinctly I think the drama of it like mm-hmm. once you're into it the moments like the emotion that you can get out of like a really big surprise mm-hmm. uh, just like kind of unmatched for me in any other like form of entertainment as it were I think like once you get emotionally invested in it it really kind of moves you in a way that I, nothing else really has for me and that might just be because it was ingrained in me from being from a kid watching it but I feel yeah. like it's special i'm i'm not an outsider <laughs> i'm not asking as some uh, interested anthropologist i if, in case viewers are listening to this <laughs> I'm wearing a shirt for mr perfect who right. was a professional wrestler when i was growing up he was my favorite professional wrestler when i was a kid um yeah. and you're wearing a shirt in case people are listening to this of brett the hitman hearts yeah. who i would say is a more perhaps than any other wrestler a timeless wrestler I feel like he would have thrived in any era and would have been considered one of the very best, even now, if he were wrestling today in his prime, uh, because he was just such a great, in- incredible in-ring performer. And so was Mr. Perfect, but he uh, he was much more injury prone than Brett was. So he didn't have quite the, the career Brett did. Uh, personally, I, I like professional wrestling. Like I'm older than you, I think. I'm 44. 
And when I first got into wrestling, I remember a, a kid told me if I liked Hog Hogan, that's how I heard it. And I said, who's Hog Hogan? And he said, no, no, Hulk Hogan. And I, <laughs> th- then I started getting into it. And I, I learned about, I started watching it back in 84 when I was eight. And I really got into it. I, I remember Nikolai Volkov being the first wrestler I saw. And, um, you know, this was the height of the Cold War. Nikolai Volkov represented the USSR. So he was yeah. the bad guy, the classic foreign heel. Uh, and I should say, uh, if you watch wrestling for a long time, wrestling has its own language. So it's possible yeah. Doug or I might end up using uh, vernacular from the wrestling world that uh, we might forget to explain. So let's try to keep each other on that in case we use okay. the term. A heel is a bad guy. Right. And a good guy is a baby face or a face. And so uh, Nikolai was the bad guy. Um, yeah, I agree with you. No other, maybe I, I should be ashamed to say this, but no other art form moves me as much as professional wrestling. I also watch mixed martial arts a lot. And I remember um, the fight where Anderson Silva lost to Chris Weidman. And Anderson Silva was my Hulk Hogan. I hated him because he would always beat people in the same way. And when Chris Weidman beat Anderson Silva, I just got absolutely enthusiastic. I mean, a little ashamed because I'm seeing a man get knocked unconscious and I'm cheering. But in wrestling, that regularly happens to me. When I see the Young Bucks fight Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega, I just get super enthusiastic. So it happens too. Um, And I could explain why I think I like professional wrestling, but this is about you more than me. (laughs) So let's talk about your book, Philosophy Smackdown. Who who would you say your intended audience is for this book? Um, I think everyone. (laughs) Um, You know, I think I wanted it to be interesting to wrestling fans who, you know, people like me who started off as wrestling fans and then, you know, just got super into it in various ways and you know wanted to think more about some key ideas in it um so um also philosophers who are already interested interested in wrestling like like yourself um who Mm -hmm. kind of might think like oh this is this should be fun like these are two things that i really like and how do they relate to each other um also philosophers who don't know anything about wrestling so just to kind of like I mean, I think, you know, with wrestling, like, it's, you know, it does sometimes have, like, a bit of a bad reputation or something, you know, not particularly worthy of intellectual inquiry. And I wanted to kind of show that, actually, it's it's super interesting, more so than lots of other things. Um, and um, so, yeah, so philosophers who are not into wrestling or even just, you know, anyone, any interested member of the general public who's not heard of either or not interested or not really kind of had much experience with either there's a way of kind of introducing people to both so having such a broad remit makes it quite difficult to write in some ways because you know you want to cater to everybody right (laughs) um but i hope there's like i hope that there's enough that's interesting there for you know people who are really you know deep into it as wrestling fans um and also people who know nothing about wrestling and same with philosophy really so yeah i wanted it to be pretty accessible to lots of people okay um so so do you think there are um any any particular uh issue well i guess we'll probably get to this in the discussion of the book i was going to ask if you thought there were any particular issues that philosophers haven't really gotten into that arise in professional wrestling in a in a way that they don't arise anywhere else but i i suspect to me that the most philosophically unique issue about professional wrestling has to do with um identity uh 
you you have a chapter three where you ask where's Razor Ramon, and we're going to get to that. But and I don't know if there's any other philosophical uh, if there's any other thing quite like that question that philosophers have ever tackled. And there might be more questions like that in the book that you see. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, I think of of professional, you know, like the intended audience of the book. To me, it was for people who really liked professional wrestling but didn't realize the philosophical significance it had. So if I were to give this to somebody, it would be a professional wrestling fan as a way to get them into philosophy. But I think also it could it could get philosophers into professional wrestling. Um, just side note, side note, if you were to try to get somebody into professional wrestling, right? If you if, if they said this is a really lowbrow form of entertainment, why should I like this? What would you show them to get them into it? Would it be would it be a promo? Would it be a match? If so, do you have one in mind? Yeah, I've thought about this because I've tried. I mean, my wife is quite sympathetic to my wrestling mm-hmm. enthusiasm, but she's not someone who's into it at all. And um, I have thought about this. I mean, not that I necessarily feel the need to get her into it because, you know, this doesn't have to be for everyone. I tried watching a show with her a few years ago. I think it was the Helen Cell that had the... McFoley? Um, uh, Sasha Banks. Oh, sure. Um so we we watched that, and I think that also had an AJ Styles John Cena match in it, which was one of their like really good like wrestling matches. That, um, right. and I think she kind of got into that. She wasn't as into the like I guess the more kind of violence laden stuff in the Hell and Cell match, but that was kind of more happenstance. I mean, the trouble is that a lot of the stuff that got me into wrestling is kind of stuff from which is very much set in its time and relates to like me growing up in a way that. You know, I think just like everything, there has to the hook that has to be there has to come from, like it has to kind of reach you in a certain way. You have to be in a certain position to to kind of get into it, and there has to be the stories. I think that kind of like hook you. I mean, for me as a kid, it was all about yeah, Bret the Hitman Hart. Like right. there was you know him triumphing over over the odds and beating Yokozuna at WrestleMania ten was like a huge thing for me as a kid, and um, my brothers like you know, mocking of that was also, you know, that I had something to defend. I had something to get into. Um, <laughs> I think my brother like, he liked Owen? Yeah, yeah. He liked Owen. Stone Cold Steve Austin was a big... Uh-huh. Yeah, so we used, enemies. Yeah, we used, to, we used to wrestle a lot as kids. I don't think my uh-huh. parents knew that much about it, but we used to kind of stage matches in our bedrooms and stuff with kind of like, and, you know. My brother and I would do that too. But he was a lot bigger than me and older too. So he would constantly body slam me and I couldn't do the same to him. So I had to have a lot of hope spots as they yeah. call them. Yeah, uh, must but... was kind of mat based. There wasn't much high flying, but. Oh yeah, I, sure. I mean, in terms of like what, I mean, the Brett Austin submission match from WrestleMania 13, I, that would be what I would say because yeah. it has a story, the way that they, the, the video package they show building up to it. It's this kind of, it's such a great story about you know, these, these two characters and that match is just, well, as, as many people have said, it's just kind of almost the perfect match, just how the story they tell in it, the, the way that it's told just, uh, and I mean, my one reluctance with that is as, as a general thing is I feel like, you know, there is a lot of blood in it. And if you're not used to wrestling and you're not used to that level of violence, I think you do, then it might not, you might be turned off by it. And I feel like that's, the, that's one thing as well. I was thinking is that, 
it's kind of hard to know in some respects because I feel like as wrestling fans you get desensitized to the violence that happens and you don't really notice it a lot of the time with a lot of the moves you don't really notice that they're kind of violent because you're just used to like oh that's a suplex or that's a that's a pile driver like that's just part of the thing or but sometimes it can you know with that, if someone's coming into it cold and not expecting that it becomes like so yeah I mean in terms of matches I think I also think I think you've got to find a match that has a clear story that you can tell the person beforehand in like a little bit and then you can see how the story unwinds I think the Bailey Sasha Banks match from <clears throat> takeover NXT takeover Brooklyn yeah where is that the Iron Woman match? sorry is that the Iron Woman match no, the one, the one where she, where Bailey first won the title. I can't, can't okay. I'm not sure, but that one because it's such a kind of clear story of like the one person who's left behind the rest of her friends and then has to kind of like overcome the odds. And just the the ending of that match is just fantastic. And then the way they all kind of you you, you get to see something real. The way that they right. know, the characters come together and, and and kind of celebrate it. So I think yeah, I mean. Other things, you know, obviously there's a way to just try to show someone the most kind of like athletically impressive match. And so that's awesome. So like, yeah, the Young Bucks, Hangman Page and Omega match, which was also an incredible story. Or something like, you know, Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero from... Eddie Guerrero from... Halloween Havoc? Yep, something like that. Which again, athleticism and story or... So I think there's various ways to do it. It kind of depends on what you think the person's into or what they think is... I guess it depends on, like, if they're sceptical, why are they sceptical? Is it because they think, like, these people are just phonies? In yeah. which case, you can demonstrate that they're not quite quickly. Is yeah. it that wrestling is lowbrow and doesn't have good storytelling? Well, then you, there's plenty of options there for that. Um, but I wouldn't, yeah. Um, the thing That's is... For the, yeah. I never, I never, um, I never thought about it that way. I never thought to, to ask, why do you think it's not worth your time? I always, like, to me, the match I would always show people would be the Ricochet versus Will Ospreay match because uh-huh. um, I always assume that they have this particular image of professional wrestling in mind as like ugly men cutting each other. And I thought, <laughs> well, this is kind of not that. This is like two incredibly athletic guys doing moves you've never seen before. And just from a kind of, it like looks balletic, right? It doesn't look even violent. It's just, just really neat. So that's what I would always show. But I think your way is better. It would work in the sense that it would actually hit them where they live. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, so, so that's a good thing to think about in terms of why people don't like it. So let's, let's go through your book chapter by chapter now. So your first chapter is about appearance versus reality in professional wrestling. You talk about Plato's cave. You use that to illustrate the various layers of reality in professional wrestling, or perhaps you use wrestling to illustrate Plato's cave. It could go either way. Um, so what do you, how would you describe what chapter one is about appearance versus reality? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's really about there's, there's ways that things appear to us to be, um, you know, in the ordinary kind of philosophical sense, you know, that we experience the world in a certain way. We see certain things, we hear them. And then there's the question of whether that really reflects how things really are. So, you know, in philosophy, at least you get these kind of, thought experiments designed to suggest that you know things might not really be as they are like we might really be in the matrix being fed experiences from a computer simulation or we might be being deceived by an evil demon as they kind of put it to think that the world is out there when it's not and 
you know, I think with, um, so what I really wanted to think about was how pro wrestling can illustrate the difference between appearance and reality and also kind of tap into what, sorry, why we care about that difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in, in wrestling, you get a clear, like diff- on the face of it, a clear difference, right? You, you get a match being presented to you in the ring, um, which, which seems to show like two people striving to beat each other in, a, in an athletic competition. Um, but then, you know, you, as you kind of grow older, you, or, you, or you read more, you learn that that's like, that's not really what's happening, right? They're, they're working together to put on this show. Um, and then as you learn more about wrestling, you learn that there's more even behind that, right? There's the story behind why these two people are wrestling each other, like why the, the stories are being told in this way and, and why, you know, other stuff about whether they, how they really feel about each other and all this stuff. So you get these kind of three layers of reality. Yeah. Um, and I was really interested in that because, again, like, you know, it seems that that's something that seems fairly unique to wrestling. I mean, I guess you get other sorts of reality TV shows that maybe there's a similar thing, but it seems to be the thing which is most salient. Like if you're watching a, like a regular sport, sporting encounter, like the reality and the appearance are pretty close. Like what you're seeing is what's really happening. Two teams try to beat each other in a football game. Or something. But, and then there's stories behind that, behind like, you know, the dressing room dramatics and stuff like this but there's but there's a kind of you know it's a different a different kind of thing in wrestling so what I wanted to do was kind of really probe on that and try to work out why wrestling fans in particular are so obsessive about this stuff and I include myself in that like I've spent countless hours listening to podcasts watching documentaries telling us about what's really going on behind the scenes in these things and in many respects I find that more fascinating than than what's happening in front of me as it were like what what's going on in the match yeah um, and i i thought that that would be a useful way to think about like why philosophers care so much about what reality about uncovering reality like there's some desire that we have to know how things really are and um i felt that wrestling was a really interesting way to think about that because it's got so many layers because it has so many approaches that fans come at it at um that it was just like this multi-dimensional thing that, that could really think more and that you could think about in, in a number of different ways. Um, in terms of like, the, I guess the overall purpose was to try to demonstrate, yeah, that by thinking about wrestling, we can really kind of work out, like tap into something very basic about what we as human beings care about. Like we care about reality, it seems, but we also care about like mystery and suspense and intrigue. Yeah. And to me, it seems that it's more about, this is the thing that surprised me, I guess, is it seems more about the intrigue than about the reality. Because often, even when we find out what, what really happened, like, we don't feel satisfied with that. And yeah, this, is, this, this to me, the, the, the person I thought of, the philosopher I thought of when I was reading this chapter, funnily enough, was Hume. Because uh-huh. um, Hume, you know, wrote this famous essay called Of Miracles. And uh-huh. in the essay, he gives a reason to not trust testimony that a miracle has happened and one of the reasons is that people really really want to believe miracles have happened so if there's an odd event and there's a kind of um esoteric explanation that it's say divine intervention or there's a more prosaic explanation which is some you know orderly scientific law working itself out or there's just a third explanation which is we don't know what happened people are going to glom on to the esoteric divine intervention one. And I find that 
that that sort of happens with professional wrestling too. So let's just take these three levels of reality. So you have a match, right? You have a match between Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect, okay? Back at SummerSlam 1991. And in that match, Mr. Perfect is the champion. Bret Hart is the challenger. They have this knockdown drag out match. It's very physically intense. If you know anything about how to do these moves, it's incredibly draining what they're doing to each other. It's very painful. And so on the surface, it looks as though, you know, Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart, just they have this beef. They don't like each other. Bret wants to win Mr. Perfect's championship. Mr. Perfect wants to keep it. Behind the scenes, of course, Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart are, they, not, they like each other, right? The actual character, Kurt Hennig, is, that's who Mr. Perfect was. That's his real name. He likes, Bret Hart is Bret Hart's real name, right? Yeah. 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 He likes Bret Hart and, and they're working together, right? They're not like the, on the surface, they're fighting each other. They're opposed. On, behind the scenes, they're trying to tell a story together. So they're working together. Also behind the scenes, part of the reason Mr. Perfect had to lose the belt is that he has a terrible back injury, right? And so this back injury means he can't really keep his title anymore because he can't do any more matches. Really, he shouldn't have done that match, but he came into that match with this terrible injury and did it anyway, right? And he, he put on a great performance. It was arguably his best match in his entire career. And that kind of adds to the enjoyment of the match, knowing what's happened behind the scenes, right? And then you have this third level of reality, which is the person who's putting the match together is Vince McMahon, who is a famously mercurial and bizarre individual <laughs> who sort of owns the American wrestling world to a large degree, especially now. Or I shouldn't say especially now, but a lot now, right? There, there's now challengers because he's run his business quite poorly in many ways. I mean, he's worth a lot of money, but from, from a storytelling perspective, the business has been bad for a number of years. And so um, then he's got his own reasons for pushing, as they say in wrestling, pushing Bret Hart and uh, having Mr. Perfect be the guy who loses to him. So you have these three levels of reality that are involved in wrestling that it doesn't really happen as much in very many other things. You said maybe reality television, right? Where like, it looks as though there's this, if you watch a show called The Real World, Back in MTV in like 1993, there was this character named Puck who was very engaging and this other character named Pedro who really did, who really was HIV positive and they had constant loggerheads. I don't know if Puck was like his character in real life, but MTV picked Puck to be with Pedro precisely because they thought there would be tension. But with, they're just predicting something. With, with Vince McMahon, he can just say there's tension and that happens. So there's a lot of differences. And then the other thing I want to analogize wrestling to is improvisational comedy. But the difference between improvisational comedy and wrestling is that we know what's going to happen in wrestling. We know the outcome. With improvisational comedy, we don't. So there's, it's both more scripted than many things and both more improvisational than many things. And I'm not sure anything else is quite like it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the improvisational aspect is often overlooked because people just say, oh, wrestling, that's scripted or, or fake, you know. Right. <laughs> Right, but but I think a lot of wrestlers don't get the credit they deserve for the amount of creativity and improvisation they have in in what they do. And I think, you know, that yeah, I think that's that's right. That, that there's a lot of that, that's something that should always be kind of that the wrestlers are these incredible athletes, but also incredible storytellers and improvisers. And it's just an amazing com- combination of skills that a good wrestler has to have, which I don't think 
I think that's also something that's unique to wrestling. To have to be a fantastic actor, improviser, athlete, all of those things. Is yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you can't get away with being good at one or two of those things and not at the others. It's just that the complete packages are going to be good at all of them, yeah. right? The Rock, who's the most famous and, I guess, rich and successful actor in the world, came from professional wrestling. And he was amazing on the mic, as they say, like as, as a talker. And he was a pretty good wrestler, too. Um, he, when he had the right opponent, he could have some really good matches. So, um, so yeah. And then uh, I don't know what, what the third part of the package is, but certainly in the, in the ring and on the mic are very important. And just having that sort of intangible it factor which the right. rock clearly had. That would be a third thing. Some people are clearly good on the mic and good in the ring and just for whatever reason, they don't, they don't reach that next level. Right. Um, I, think, I think with the rock as well, that he did have that ability to improvise, you know, I think um, when you look at like, yeah, I think the, the match he had with Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 18, where he was supposed to be the, the good, baby, guy. good guy and Hogan was supposed to be the heel and then the crowd start chanting for Hogan and then the rock, he just knew, he just knew what to do. He knew he slipped back into heel rock mode and kind of like, yeah. Whereas other people might have frozen and just, you know, not, not known. Like he immediately just had the sense to do that. And um, yeah. yeah, I think Roman Reigns might've frozen. Like, <laughs> based, so Roman Reigns is the current, one of the current top people in professional wrestling and he's the rock's cousin. And there was a famous match at Royal Rumble where he won the match and the audience really booed him and he didn't seem to know how to react to that. Um, so here's one thing about professional wrestling. I'm going to stay on appearance versus reality. Sometimes professional wrestlers break the fourth wall. They let you know, you know, hey, I'm not being my character right now. I'm being me. Kofi Kingston did that fairly recently. He said, I'm not, I'm not, this is not me in character. This is me as Kofi. Um, there was a, another wrestling promotion called WCW, which was WWFs. Back then it was called WWF their rival back in the 90s, and during their decline, right, at one point they were higher than WWE in terms of ratings, but then they started to decline because of bad writing, and one of the things that was characteristic of the bad writing, there was this guy, Vince Russo, who wrote the show very poorly and made as part of the story the fact that this was fake, as it were, and that these guys wanted to be the one who was pushed, and that they would talk about that, and to me that made the show completely unwatchable. I didn't want to watch a show about the behind the scenes part of the show. I just wanted to watch the show. Do you have that reaction to breaking the fourth wall? Do you think that there's some intrinsic limitation to wrestling where it can't really do that? Or do you think it was just Vince's, Vince Russo's poor writing? Yeah, I think, I think if you're going to do something like that, it has to be moments that are, that don't happen very often mm-hmm. have service and also usually serve some specific purpose um, which is not just like trying to get people interested. Like, so they, they have to involve some sort of significant character kind of, if you're doing it for, for something that's going to ultimately be incorporated into the show, then I feel like it, there has to be some reason for it. With, with Russo and WCW, it just seems like he, his view was, would seem to be like, fans want to know about the intrigue. Let's just give it to them straight up. Yeah. And I think that's not really true because the intrigue is only interesting if it's intrigue, right? If there's some appearance that you're given and then you want to speculate about the reality behind it. If you're just given the reality, then that's not interesting anymore. <laughs> so yeah. I think that he fundamentally misunderstood what wrestling fans were interested in. I think with, um, so I think that 
the the writing of that was just based on not really getting what people wanted. Whereas I think when you have moments like, yeah, like you mentioned with Kofi Kingston or even something like, you know, when Raymond Reigns announced his leukemia on Raw and he was like, you know, the reality is my name is Joe and I've, I've been living with leukemia for 11 years. Like that's like a jarring break, right? From right. the character to the person, but it was an incredibly, and it, I mean, obviously it was intended to convey some personal information for why he was not going to be on the show for a while, but it was, I mean, given that they did it that way, it was obviously supposed to be part of the show. It was supposed to be something that fans would engage with in some way. And, you know, I think when you have moments like that, because they are set aside from everything else, they take you into a different world for a moment and then you go back in. I think if you have too much of it, then the the show itself suffers. So, I mean, so in the build-up to WrestleMania 35, I remember, I think, when Ronda Rousey was, was, you know, she was feuding with Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair. And at one point, you know, her kind of stick was like, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a real fighter because she was a right. former UFC champion. Um, I'm a real MMA fighter. And I think, I believe she called Lynch and Flair kind of carny con artists, right? You, what you do isn't real. If you, I think something like that kind of takes you out of it, right? Because you, you don't, that's not really how you want it to be presented because you want it yeah. to be invested in the match. And now you've got someone telling you that the match is not real. And if it was real, then I would beat you. Like, if, you know, then <laughs> right. stuff like that doesn't really make, make sense. I mean, so, I mean, all of these things as well are, I guess, what we would call like worked shoots in a way, right there. Well, maybe not the Raymond Reigns one, but the, 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 um, the Ronda Rousey stuff and the Vince Russo stuff was all supposed to be presenting stuff that's real in a way that is part of the show um yeah yeah so for the people who don't know there are these terms in wrestling a shoot and a work right. a work is is something that's not real it's part of the story and a shoot is something where it's not part of the story where, where it's real and there are the most famous shoot in wrestling history is known as the montreal screw job where vince mcmahon didn't want bret hart to win a match and he told bret hart hey you're going to win this match and then you're going to lose tomorrow night and so Bret Hart assumed that was happening. And then Vince McMahon had the referee declare Bret's opponent, Shawn Michaels, the winner, which is not what, what Bret Hart thought was going to happen. Bret Hart, the human, Bret Hart, the, the, the man, not Bret Hart, the character. And so then Bret Hart, the human, knocked Vince McMahon out in real life. And, uh, and there was actually the good fortune of there being a documentary crew following all this. It was an amazing <laughs> moment that, if there's one story you follow in professional wrestling, that would probably be the most intriguing and salacious. And I think that affected, remember, our, I remember now my point about Hume earlier about how people want to believe the most extravagant depiction of, of what's happening. That is the most extravagant thing that maybe has ever happened in professional wrestling that I know of, at least during my life as a fan. And I think what happens is that you want there to be the possibility of some really salacious event happening behind the scenes. But often if it's just said to you, oh, it is happening, that, that takes away from the intrigue. So like there was, um, there was a time when there was this guy, CM Punk, who used to be in wrestling. He was feuding with another guy, Triple H. And there was all these backstage back, uh, rumors that Triple H and CM Punk really didn't like each other. CM Punk was very unhappy. And the characters would hint at that in their on-screen dealings, but they didn't say it. 
out and out. And so that was much more effective to keep me interested than saying, hey, here's the story, everybody. My name is Phil Brooks. This guy's <laughs> name is Paul Levesque. And we really don't like each other. Like, who cares? Yeah. You want it to be the character sort of, you want to peek through at reality, but not to see the whole thing. And I think that might even be true with miracle reports too. You, you yeah. almost want it to be the case that you're unsure whether there was a divine intervention or unsure whether there was, let's say, a UFO event. You kind of want the possibility to be open, but never to be resolved. Maybe there's something similar like that with wrestling. Yeah. But we spent a lot of time on appearance versus reality. Let's talk about chapter two, freedom. Um, so what's this chapter about? Uh, it's, yeah. you know, I know a lot about gimmicks and identity. Or no, sorry, that's the next chapter. This one's about what wrestlers get to, get to do. So let's, sorry, why don't you tell us what chapter two is about? Yeah, so I think, you know, this was a, a lot about the idea of uh, scripting in wrestling. So, you know, that some people kind of say, well, wrestling's not interesting or it's fake because it's scripted, right? Because the, the people involved are being told what to do. Um, and that's, you know, so, I mean, there was two different things I was thinking about it. One was in respect to the kind of is wrestling a sport discussion, which I kind of talk about more later in the book. Yeah. And, um, you know, the first point I just kind of make is just that if you compare it to other sports, like a lot of other sports have a high degree of scripting, like, you know, coaches give players instructions or people are given routines to perform in gymnastics, but, you know, so it's not that different from those sorts of activities. But I was more interested in the the idea of scripting and how it relates to the idea of human beings in general having free will. So like one way to contrast the wrestler from, um, from real life, as it were. So again, thinking back to this kind of fake versus real way that sometimes people talk about wrestling, it's like, well, wrestling's fake because it's scripted in contrast to real life where, you know, anything goes, like we get to choose what to do. And right. I think what I wanted to do was kind of show that that distinction is not quite so clearly drawn, that, um, you know, actually real life in various ways we can think of as being just as scripted as wrestling, if not more so. Um, and also that we can use the way that wrestlers think about what they do to try to understand, like, how to find value in our lives, even if that's the case. Even if we have very little control over what we do, um, then we can still, you know, find find something valuable in our lives in that through, through thinking about how wrestlers deal with that sort of fate that they're given. Um, uh, and then I also wanted to talk, yeah, that also talks about incorporating things about social scripts. And um, so there's the kind of more metaphysical way that, you know, we think that there's a problem of free will from a metaphysical sense and that, you know, you know, the laws of the universe seem pretty, seem pretty constant and our brains and our minds are kind of like, seem perhaps subject to those laws. And if that's the case, then really what we decide to do is not really decided by us. It's decided by all these other events that are happening. Um, but then there's also, even if you set that aside, the idea that we're completely free to do whatever we want is kind of not really true when you think about the scripts that we are assigned socially. So whether it's just passing someone in the street, what you're supposed to say to them, like there's rules about that. Uh, and also more kind of generally kind of rules about, you know, scripts that, in, that involve with things like gender and race and, you know, how people are expected to behave in certain ways as a result of, certain features um that they're taken to have and and then i wanted to kind of tie that into a bit to women's wrestling and how that's developed and the flipping the script that seems to have occurred in recent years at least yeah i think like to me there is a really interesting i find the metaphysical question of free will quite interesting and i you know i 
I read a lot about it. I've written book reviews. I haven't published any work of my own on that. And I think there is a really interesting parallel between, say, Vince and God, right? Uh, <laughs> which he would be happy to hear. But, um, but like about whether or not the fact that a wrestler's kind of fate is determined by some thing means that that wrestler doesn't have freedom. Just like if there is a God, or even if there isn't, even if, we're, even if everything is just determined, whether that means that we don't have freedom. And, um, and to me, yeah, you have this really interesting distinction, which is really helpful for me to understand how wrestlers think about their own work between what you call creative control and creative freedom, right. where a wrestler has creative control if he or she can determine the outcome of their matches, right. which is really rare. It's happened. And it can be a disaster if it happens, because if more than one wrestler has creative freedom, then there can be uh, irresolvable disputes. Right. And sorry, creative control, there can be irresolvable disputes. But then there's creative freedom, which is it's one thing to be told, hey, you're going to lose and you're going to win, have the match. But then if it's up to the wrestlers how they have the match, they both have creative freedom, even if they don't have creative control. They can't control the outcomes but they can control how they get to the outcomes. And so, and I think there was even a third thing that relates to your social scripts thing too, which is that to some extent, so, so there's these terms in the, in the business, jobber, which is somebody who always loses. He yeah. does the job as it were, which means their job is to lose. Right. Mid Carter, who wins a lot, but is never going to be the face of the companies. It doesn't really draw a lot of money. And then Top guy is often the term used. They don't really say top gal. They could, but they, not to my knowledge, they don't. And the top, the top people are the ones who make the most money, right? And they push the industry along. And whether you're a top person or a mid-carter or a jobber really depends on like social facts, which is how does the audience react to you? Right. And that can be, I think, related to to social constructionism too and about like gender roles and racial roles and scripts like change the way the audience reacts to people of a certain race and you change what their possibilities are right, right. and like the, the case in point to that is daniel bryan right. daniel bryan was being told by vince mcmahon that you're not really ever going to go anywhere you're a really good in-ring performer but people just don't like you and because he thought people don't like him he made him a mid-carter he would, right. his point was to, you know, to have a really impressive match to get somebody else to win, to push that other person. But the audience just loved Daniel Bryan so much that Vince eventually found himself forced to make Daniel Bryan the top guy. And that's a really, in, and, and unfortunately that, that changed the way McMahon booked things forevermore. He started making people, the audience liked lose because he thought it would make them like him more. And it just didn't work like that. He misunderstood the lesson. But um, the Daniel Bryan story, I think, is really interesting for, like, issues of social change and that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, that's a nice way of, of thinking about this, because, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the different scripts in terms of, like, yeah, what, your, what wrestlers are, are seen to kind of, what level they seem to occupy and what ceiling they seem to have as a result of that. And, and the different ways that they, that ceiling can be broken. Like, so sometimes it seems... And how, so you mentioned Daniel Bryan as a case, right? That's a like fan-driven um, move from like mid-carder to, to main event or top guy. Um, and then other times you see it, which works, right? And then 
then he kind of was able to stay at that sustained position and the company got behind him because they saw probably, you know, how much how much money he was drawing at that level, right? right? Even if they still secretly didn't want to push someone like that as as the as the main star. But then you have other cases where it comes from the company. So I was thinking of, you know, when there's a I guess a couple of at least a couple of cases from um you know, with Jinder Mahal a few years ago, who was a jobber. He was in yeah. a group called the Three Man Three Man Band, I think. Yeah, Three Yeah. Yeah. So they they were just a kind of joke team that lost every every match, and then out of nowhere, he was he kind of won a I can't remember if it's a tournament or a battle royal to win a, a title shot against Randy Orton for the WWE Championship, and he won it. Yeah. And he was then being pushed as a top guy from, from nowhere without any sort of fan movement to say, look, we want Jinder as a top guy. It was just a company driven thing. Yeah. And, you know, that didn't seem to work quite so well. And it's, I guess it's, so then I guess with these social scripts, you see this kind of interplay um, between two different sources of power, I suppose. There's the kind of the top down power of the company saying, this is who we want and this is who we want to push. And then you have the, kind of bottom-up power of the fans saying no that this is the person that that, that we, we, we really want to, to succeed and I think a lot of problems that have happened in WWE over the last few years in terms of struggling to get the fans behind the people that they want to get at the top is that it's been a lot more top-down right so Jinder Mahal was an extreme case but you mentioned Raymond Reigns before who was who was someone who had a good degree of fan support but then there was a point where that kind of shifted to be like, well, he, now he's the company's top guy and the fans kind of fell away, but they didn't listen to the fans. They just kept pushing him as the top guy saying like, no, he's still our main event guy. He was main eventing shows, even if he didn't have the title um, yeah. at the cost of, you know, other people. And it's, um, so it, it's kind of interesting to think about how, how these scripts, how these kind of roles get formed and how they can get broken and, what's needed in order for something to really, I guess, change in a substantial way. It seems that you need some sort of synergy or something of, of both, right? But Well, and also the Roman Reigns case raises an interesting question because Roman Reigns was very well liked. He was part of a faction called The Shield, which was probably the most popular faction. It was three men, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, and uh, Dean Ambrose, as he was then called, who um, were, the fans loved them. Roman Reigns is one of the most popular members, maybe the most popular member. And then he went solo and the fans still liked him, but then they felt he was pushed too hard. So they started to boo Roman Reigns, like, like effusively, but he still sold a lot of merchandise, even though he was being booed a lot. And I don't know how much that merchandise was just kids who liked him or how much of it was the fans who were booing him, but WWE's perspective, and I'm not sure if it's wrong, I really don't know, was that the fans enjoyed booing him. Right. That's why he was the top guy, because they wanted to have somebody to rebel against. So the company didn't, even though he was booed, the company didn't turn him into a bad guy. They kept him a good guy, which made him more of a bad guy to the fans. And so they wanted to portray it as a kind of strategy, right? We want him, we're pushing him as a good guy precisely because we know it's going to drive you crazy. And so there's this, there's this thing about how much how much are, are these people, is they're being hated and being seen as inauthentic part of what makes them successful? And I feel like there's this easy transition to like thinking about the kinds of stories the media pushes, where sometimes you know the media is focusing on this story precisely because they know it'll drive left-wingers or right-wingers crazy. 
And then when they're driven crazy, the other side's driven crazy by their excesses. And then it's just like this orgy of hate where um, that almost seems to be the point, which is to sell papers. And maybe the point of WWE is you hope that the, that Roman Reigns is going to lose to somebody he you don't think he'll lose to. Like I really hoped AJ Styles would beat him in their in their matches, but he never did. So it worked on me. That was their plan. Yeah, it's an interest. Yeah, I think there's. Oh yeah, it's 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 a lot to think about. I think because yeah, on one level you could view it as well. Look, they could, the the company could also say, look, he's not he's not a bad guy, right? It's it's just that. Some fans don't like him as much as the others. So you mentioned the merchandise, right? So maybe he's really popular with with like younger viewers, right? And I guess you get the same questions with with John Cena for a number of years as well, who was, you know, pushed it heavily as the top guy, but again got booed a lot and then cheered a lot a lot of the time by kids who would buy a lot of merchandise. Yeah. So from the company's point of view, they could be like, No, look, this is the hero, this is the good guy. Um, and you know, we we can look at our merchandise sales to, to kind of prove that. It's just that a vocal minority <laughs> uh-huh. and we're you know we're quite happy to just you know ignore those people and kind of in fact kind of toy with them a bit troll them a bit and yeah. we really care about you know these this this sub- subset of viewers who are you know for who for whom he's the hero right so um on the other hand yeah it could be that and i think they did play on this of this controversy thing a lot when Roman Reigns would say things like, I'm not a good guy, I'm not a bad guy, I'm the guy, right? So there he's explicitly acknowledging, like, again, kind of almost breaking the fourth wall, like... That's right, almost. <laughs> almost, right? He's yeah. like, like, I'm not, I'm not being... You could say it as, look, I'm really not a good guy or a bad guy, I'm just the guy, or it could be like, look, I'm not being presented as a good guy or a bad guy, you're just as the guy, but of course, him being presented as the guy is what made him be a bad guy to many people, right? Because... Right. They thought that someone who wasn't worthy of that level of push or of like popularity from the from the point of view of the company was was getting it, and he was beating people like AJ Styles, who were the you know the the kind of darlings of the of the kind of more I guess yeah a lot of older wrestling fans who um, so I, you know I think I guess there's also questions about yeah about what there's the controversy idea there's the there's the kind of we're just we're booking shows, we're, we're making shows for, for a certain audience, and then the fact that this other audience watches it and doesn't like it, that's kind of their, <laughs> that's yeah. their problem, but they're still going to watch it, right? Um, and I guess, I don't know whether, I mean, that was all during a time where they had very little if no major competition from, from other US companies, but then, you know, with All Elite Wrestling starting up um, last year, you know, that's a show that seems to be specifically designed for the fans who are booing, well, not specifically designed, but to a large extent to appeal to the fans who are booing Roman Reigns, like who yeah. didn't want that kind of character. So I don't know whether, you know, the appearance of a competitor that, that might they might lose fans to would, would change things a bit. It's hard to say, but I don't know it could be all of those things as well, right? It could just be like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's really fascinating. I think, again, like to think about, and again, just thinking about this in terms of like the interplay between a company and their fans. Like yeah. you, a sports team, for example, say like Liverpool Football Club, they have their fans, but they don't, they're not going to mess with them and toy with them in the way that WWE does. Or I suppose you could argue that certain TV shows do this. Like, I'm just trying to think of an example where, you know, they kill off a major character 
and they know that fans are going to be annoyed by it, but they kind of do it because they know that it will generate interest in a in the show. The Walking Dead did that a okay. bit times. Yeah, but that show, yeah, I, I never really enjoyed that show, so I don't know for <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's just fascinating. Yeah, be, I, I'm I'm going to skip chapter three because I want to do chapter three about identity at the end when we're talking about pro wrestling and philosophy because I think yeah. those two chapters relate pretty closely. Let's go to chapter four, morality. And this yeah. is a really interesting chapter. Like, to me, this, I've always wondered, you know, I've, I've, I've been a philosopher professionally since 2007. And I've been a pro wrestling fan, as I told you, since 1984. And I've always been trying to figure out, is there anything I have to write about philosophically pro wrestling? I could never figure it out. But my guess was going to be the morality of pro wrestling, about the change in what is con- considered a good guy to what's considered a good guy now, because there was a sort of a way that wrestlers were presented as good guys in at least the eighties and probably before, but then there was a big change in who was considered a good guy in the nineties and to now. So why don't you talk about what, what wrestling morality was like in the eighties and how it changed in the nineties and, and beyond. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, yeah, in the eighties, it was a much more, it was a very kind of, simplistic good versus bad divide right so you had your good guys that were pretty much flawless kind of heroes who were you know these colorful characters who were very kind of wholesome and family friendly and always you know we're talking about you know you've always got to do your best and try and win and if you don't like that's okay um and the bad guys and they would always fight fair there would be no cheating from the good guys there would be these kind of you know, I guess role models for young kids is one way to think of it. Like, right. these are people who parents could be confident having their their children kind of cheer because they exhibited all the traditional virtues that, you know, a classic hero would. Like, they would never give up, but they would always play fair. They would never bend the rules. They would always be kind of kind to other people. Um, and then you had the bad guys who were just these cheating, <laughs> like, right. very, like, insincere um kind of vicious and mean characters depending on which way you go or they might be um you know kind of exhibiting all these kind of characteristics that you would tell your kids like don't lie <laughs> as, you know as they, these terms got put later like don't lie cheat or steal as you know as as they got that phrase got co-opted later um right who they end up using it as a face but yeah uh, you know, kind of like all the kind of the kind of bad stuff that you would say it's kind of very much like something like you know your star wars like Jedi versus Sith, the good versus the bad. And then, and one of the things is that the bad guys, they, there were terms in the industry for two kinds of bad guys, which was the monster heel, who was like really violent and vicious, overly so, and yeah. who often, often he wouldn't cheat, but his manager would cheat on his behalf. Yeah. And then the chicken shit heel, <laughs> cowardly and underhanded, who would cheat personally and was often easy to sort of beat up, but then would always use cunning to try to get the advantage. And this was sort of the tropes, right? You could be good in one way, and you could be bad through an excess of, like, violence, or you could be bad in an excess of cowardice, right? right? And that sort of plays into your way of looking at wrestling morality as as a kind of virtue theory. Yeah. Yeah, because then, I mean, because kind of what happens then after that, it seemed, in, particularly in the mid to late 90s, was the people with the crowd started cheering people who were more like, I guess probably more like the monster heel sorts of bad guys that you mentioned, right? Rather than the, the chicken shit heels as such. But fans started to get behind characters who 
wouldn't necessarily play fair all the time, who, you know, could be quite mean and quite rash with their actions. So you had, like, in the 80s, you had, like, this idea of virtue and vice. Like, you had, like, the good guys were the virtuous ones, the bad guys were the ones who exhibited vices in different ways, depending on how, you know, which kind of heel they were. And then it got a bit more murky, right, in the 90s, where you'd have characters that were neither, like, completely good or completely bad. You'd have some people who were kind of, and this kind of, I mean, the way that characters change, right? So we were talking about Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin before. And um, so one one kind of, I guess, this feud might maybe encapsulates like this shift, right? So Bret Hart was traditionally this kind of hero, right? He was, he was your archetypal good guy. He would never cheat. He would always play fair. He would always try his hardest to win. And then he comes up against Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's this vicious, mean bad guy who's determined to destroy destroy him and his legacy right and then during the course of this feud like austin's obsession with heart kind of turns bret hart almost into the thing that he hates which is steve austin because he gets so obsessed in turn with austin that you know his his character starts to change yeah and things work out the way that he wants now he starts to complain about that which he'd never done before and then this, this, so what happened was this kind of gradual turn where the audience is now shifting, right? Because they suddenly Bret Hart's complaining he's exhibiting vices and they don't know how to react to that. Austin's still this kind of badass, right? He's this, yeah. he's this incredibly kind of compelling like machine who's determined at all costs to get what he wants. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, that famous match that I mentioned that we were talking about earlier at WrestleMania 13, they kind of switch it. So at the end of that match, Bret Hart is the bad guy and Austin is, is the good guy, but there's still like, it's still murky, right? And that, that, and Austin being a good guy now doesn't mean that he suddenly loses all of the characteristics of being a bad guy before, which is what they'd done in the past when they'd, they had a bad guy that they wanted to make a good guy because the bad guy was becoming popular. So I think some people think this happened with Diesel, for example, in, in, in the mid nineties when he became champion, he was a, he was a bad guy. This, he became a good guy. And then they just immediately tried to turn him into Hulk Hogan and took away all the stuff that people liked about him. Right. Whereas with Austin, they didn't do that, right? They kept all of his mean, his meanness, his aggressiveness, his um, his obsessiveness, and people started to cheer that. And I think what, what happens there is you get like a more complex array of characters where there's no clear good guy and bad guy. There's, there's people that people like because they exhibit certain virtues, even in spite of the vices. So like Austin's, particularly when Austin then started feuding with, with, Vince McMahon as the or Mr. McMahon as the owner of the company, Austin's like refusal to to bow to authority and his you know courageousness in the face of overwhelming odds were things that people really like tap which really tapped into something for people which which they enabled them to overlook like a lot of the bad features that that they that made him dislike him before. Um, yeah, and you have a story about why um, this change happened about. Because before, as you were saying, in the 80s, when you had a baby face, they were all pretty much what we call white meat baby faces, right? People with no vices whatsoever, who are perfectly virtuous. And then I remember as a kid, and I, I might be misremembering, but I remember as a kid, every single match where a heel won, they would cheat. I don't remember a single match, at least in WWF, where a heel would win without cheating. And that would really bother me. I always wanted a heel to at least sometimes be able to beat a face without cheating. And I know in WCW that happened, but in in WWF that wasn't happening. And I I would get frustrated with the monotony of the storytelling. 
And I also think, and you have, you have, your theory is that the reason that uh, flawed heroes or anti-heroes became more popular in the 90s is that they were more relatable to us than, uh, the, than the white me baby faces. My, my problem with this story is that it seems like, well, that was always true, right? Why, I mean, the, um, the flawed heroes were always more relatable to us than the white me baby faces. So how come they weren't more popular earlier? And my theory was that this has to do with the fracturing of the television market where um, it has to do with once advertisers realized that shows that were gritty, like Hill Street Blues, were more interesting to, say, 18 to 29-year-olds. And once they could tell which shows had the 18 to 29-year-old demographic, they would lean into that because what mattered more than pure ratings was the right ratings, right? Which group is watching you? And if it's 18 to 29-year-olds, they're the kind who develop brand loyalties over a lifetime. So shows really wanted to appeal to that. And so... And I do think that the, the wrestling age became younger in the late 90s than it had been in the 80s. I don't know that. That's my theory. But also the other thing is that in 1992 or three, there was a big steroid trial in WWF. And you, it became clear that these were not great people. A lot of them, at least Hulk Hogan, who was the most famous baby face, who said, you know, say your prayers, take your vitamins. It turns out the vitamins he was taking were steroids and cocaine. And so that made his, um, his recommendations less uh, plausible <laughs> to parents. And so I think there was a kind of just WWE couldn't, couldn't plausibly present white meat baby faces anymore. They just didn't have the credibility. And so I think that forced them, especially after they were losing their WCW, that forced them to sort of come up with a way of, of having storylines they could plausibly offer. And then they found lightning in a bottle with Steve Austin, who, in my opinion, was the greatest performer ever in terms of having an authentic gimmick, right? He has this realism about him that I don't know anybody else can match. I mean, maybe Ric Flair, but, um, but Ric Flair is a very different kind of character, right? He's more of the playboy type. Steve Austin's the irascible, for lack of a better word, redneck. And, um, and that was, uh, that really, that really stirred something up. And it was just interesting just to watch that whole, and it was just well-written, the Vince McMahon, Stone Cold Steve Austin thing. That was when Vince was on TV himself, finally, as a heel. And he was, I mean, say what you will about Vince McMahon as a person. As a heel, he's incredible. He's like one of the greatest bad guys ever, just as a performer. So that whole thing was, was gold. But, um, but yeah, I, I tend to think that like what, what's the most interesting wrestling is the kind you were saying with Bret Hart and Steve Austin, where you can see it from both of their point of views and you can identify with one or the other and see why they're doing what they're doing. And, um, and I just think wrestling too often forgets that heels have a justification and a point of view for what they're doing too. And if they're just pure bad guys, it's just like, I can't relate to them either. But yeah, so I'm not wholly rejecting your theory, but I think we have to add more to it. Like why did the fact it's not relatable matter after a while? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, I think they could both be different parts of the overall explanation, you know, because I think one thing, just speaking from my own experience as a, as a viewer, right? So when I was a kid during the, during the Hogan era, Hogan Ultimate Warrior kind of stuff, like, yeah, I was, I was really into that. And, you know, I, I would, didn't really want more from the characters than what was given to me. But then as I got older, especially as a teenager and you're, you know, you go from being a kid to, yeah, to, to the, the difficult 
adolescent stage what you what you relate to and what you want is is different right you don't want the goody two-shoes anymore you want someone who's got a bit of an edge you want someone who you know is kind of mimicking your own battles with authority whether it's your parents or your school teachers or whatever and who's like who you can relate to and when Vince drops sorry when Austin drops Vince with a stunner you can be like okay (laughs) you know I can relate to feeling that way because I feel frustrated about similar stuff about you know authority figures or when you know to just just telling them no so I think the audience growing up which then coincides I think with the with the demographic you mentioned I think probably was a was wanting that you know did kind of drive that that shift but yeah I think the the TV market you mentioned especially when you know I think with with WCW that seems like something that they were really going for specifically when they and I think that's what forced the WWF to change a bit as well was that they were the the, you know with the the NWO storyline the invasion as it were of WCW from former WWF guys which seemed more real was was hitting more popularity in that 18 to 30 market and WWF then kind of shifted as well I think you're right too about the heels thing like yeah you need the heel has to be justified from their own rights that it has to make sense as to why they're upset or angry if they're just mean for the sake of it yeah I mean some people exist I suppose right but like it's not clear what you do with them Right. <laughs> I guess you just beat him up, I suppose. <laughs> no, and that's what happens. But speaking about um, going up against authority and being frustrated, let's talk about chapter five about justice. Because in this chapter, you talk a lot about wrestling's past. Right. And, and to some extent, it's present too, where the moral attitudes, it seems to either embody or say nothing about or defend, strike many people nowadays as regressive so there's no doubt in my mind that the character Goldust in 1996 was a gay panic character the thought being that you know he would like kiss his opponents and that would that would that would be like some kind of defilement of them and they would try to react and and he was very you know clearly he, he wanted to do something to these people sexually and you know this was a lot of straight men's fears about gay men that they were tried to like molest me and that kind of stuff and then um there was the uh, chucky and billy storyline about how they were going to have a gay marriage but then it turns out they weren't gay and there's lots of stuff about um gayness in in the history of wwe where it looks as a real character flaw adrian adonis is another one where you know what you're supposed to do with characters who are effeminate like that is beat them up right? That's what they deserve. And certainly WWE at, in the 80s and, and later on in the 90s was fairly unapologetic about that. Right. Now they, I would say that is not their view anymore. They have some out characters, although um, like right now they have a gay man wrestling for them named Jake Atlas, but they haven't even said that he's gay, right? He just talks sort of vaguely about overcoming struggles and then they have um, Sonia Deville, who is openly gay, but that never plays into any of the storylines. Right. And um, and then AEW, who's the main competitor now, has uh, a gay man, Sonny Kiss, who who wrestles for them, and uh, Nyla Rose, who's trans, and she was their women's champion for a while. And they never talked about Nyla Rose as trans, and. One question you have is like when you when it comes to Sunny Kiss and Nyla Rose, AEW's approach is let's not talk about it, not because we're ashamed, but because there's nothing to talk about. Right? It's perfectly normal 
And that's one approach. And you think that has its issues, but you, you also seem to think it's defensible. <clears throat> but you also seem to think that a wrestling company should try to push in favor of socially progressive issues. So one role, one question I have is, should that be the role of a wrestling company? Should, should it be the, or, or is it okay for a wrestling company to say, look, we're not going to get into politics. Like, do you think that's something, and of course, to some degree, everything is political. Saying we're not going to get into politics is self-political. But should there be a kind of space where people can, as uh, Jim Ross, the announcer would say, turn off their brains and just watch kind of old-fashioned tales of good versus evil or flawed versus more flawed? And uh, so that's basically, and then the other thing is, how do you handle, like, Nyla Rose? Like, should, if you want to draw attention to Nyla Rose, should Nyla Rose face somebody who's transphobic? Right. Or is that not something that a wrestling company should talk about? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah, these are, you know, I think these are tough questions. I think, like, in the book, I kind of explore each of them without really giving a a settled view on what, what I think is the right way. I mean, I think, so there's a number of things going on here. One is like, well, let's, setting aside wrestling's past for the moment, should, yeah, should a company who's providing entertainment, you know, in, you know, engage with issues of social justice in a progressive way? Like, should they kind of deliberately represent them on screen in ways that, you know, might um, be kind of, you know, helpful? (laughs) Um, With wrestling, it's, like you said, like you were talking about with the past, it's it's complex because it has such a dreadful past of the way that it's dealt with these issues. Um, it's well, I suppose you could argue that it's it's mainly like WWF or WWE, but also I you know I can't. When I was doing that chapter, I was struggling really to think of any positive cases from the from the history of like mainstream wrestling in the United States, and I, I struggled to really come up with any. I mean, the, so the example I used. As a, as a more positive case was from New Japan with the Golden Lover storyline. But um, when you have like a history of an, in, of, a, of an industry which has been so so dreadful about this in the past, like I wonder if that places an additional obligation on it. Um, I think, so my, yeah, I can, the AW approach and I think because another complication is like what are the performers comfortable doing? <clears throat> right. You know, I think, um, I certainly wouldn't feel that it would be right for a company to force, say, a gay or a trans wrestler to deliberately confront, you know, issues on screen if they didn't want to. Right. Um, so I, I don't, that's another reason why I was kind of like hesitant about making it, because initially I thought like they have an obligation to do it. Like, they, like wrestling companies have an obligation to present these issues in in a more, kind of um kind of central way but then that puts a lot of pressure on performers that might not feel comfortable doing that and i feel like you shouldn't they shouldn't have to well and not only that um imagine that nyla rose went up against a uh, a character who was transphobic what if yeah. that performer didn't want to be transphobic right. Right? right and then what sort of social media backlash would they get just because their character was transphobic right yeah and i think that's why like so i think one one way to think about it is like if they are, it's so difficult to handle these things well that it would have to be part of a, there'd have to be a story that was there to be told that everyone involved is comfortable doing. And I think if it's, so the the cases where if you just had someone being transphobic just because you wanted to get that character booed, right? So, you know, let's say they, 
you know, another wrestler in the AW women's division, let's say Britt Baker, who's currently kind of, you know, been working as a heel. Suppose they think we want to get her even more heat or even more booze by having her be transphobic. And that's the only reason we're doing it. Mm-hmm. I think that's not really a good reason, right? If, you, if you're just doing it to get a character more booed, then that's, that's not a good reason to engage in like, having them say transphobic or racist or homophobic things. If it's part of a story which involves, yeah, like you, like you're talking about, right, overcoming the very real issues and problems that many people face, and providing some sort of inspirational story for for viewers, um, then I can see it being more more kind of defensible. But I think you have to think carefully about all the people involved, right? Because if you have someone who's just openly transphobic on on the shows, right? that's a different sort of way to be a heel from, from most other things. I feel like there would have to be some sort of redemption arc in there where you could have that character learn something from what's going on. Otherwise, yeah, what do you do with that character afterwards? Um, well, this sort I- of happened with Jack Swagger um, when, he had, when he was managed by, who's the manager's name? Zane something? Um, Zeb um, Walter. Zeb Coulter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when Jack Swagger was managed by Zeb Coulter, he was um, doing an anti-immigrant gimmick, right? right. And, um, and, and WWE didn't portray him as the hero, I don't think. I think they were portraying him as the bad guy for his anti-immigrant stuff. And yeah. um, from what I remember, he would like fight wrestlers who were not from the United States and sometimes he would win and sometimes he would lose and that was just what would happen, right? Sometimes he, like, he fought the great Kali, I remember, and got beaten up. Great Kali being from India. And, um, and it's just like, you know, I don't know that Jack Swagger learned. I mean, eventually he, he probably became a face, or maybe they quietly dropped the gimmick. But, um, but yeah, he would just sometimes win and sometimes lose. I mean, maybe, maybe the difference is that, like, the anti-immigrant gimmick isn't as hurtful, as like a transphobic gimmick or as a racist gimmick? I'm not sure. I suppose it would depend on whether or not an uh, an immigrant who is, let's say, undocumented is watching it, and that might matter. And of course, the WWF, probably probably their biggest segment of the fan base besides white Americans is Hispanic Americans, I would guess. Um, And so that, that that would have a different valence as well. So yeah, it's a good question to figure out how to, how to do it. Um, but I do think that like, yeah, now I don't think you can do it anymore, but I think there was a time when you could have a character be racist and lose just as a kind of morality tale. I mean, they wouldn't have to lose every match, but they'd have to eventually lose what they call the blow-off match, right? The final match. That's why the Triple H beating Booker T in their blow-off match was so sort of like demoralizing. Like, I mean, and, and there are some movies out there where like the bad guys win and that's just the end of the movie. And that's like, okay, what do we learn from that? Like, you know, life doesn't always go like what you want. Sometimes the bad guys do win, but maybe wrestling shouldn't aim for that level of, um, I don't know if I want to call it nuance or for that kind of affect. I don't know if should wrestling be like more positive as a, as a storytelling device. Yeah. I mean, so I think, because as you were saying that about movies, I was thinking, yeah, but in TV shows or in movies, you have racist characters that say racist things, and that's not unusual. Like, it wouldn't be, like, a shocking thing um, in, in, the, in that they are saying those things, right, because it's they're part of telling a story. But whereas in wrestling, it seems different. I wonder if this kind of goes back to 
some of the things we talked about before, and I think we'll get onto as well later about the connection between a wrestler and their character. It just seems like something so different from things in, in movies and TV shows where it just for it for good or for bad, and maybe there's not even it's not even justifiable. It seems that there's a much more personal connection between the wrestler and their their gimmick or who they're portraying on screen. And I don't know whether that's why it makes these things in with these racist incidents or the, you know things like that not incidents but storylines in wrestling just a lot more uncomfortable because because it seems like it's there's not such a clear separation between the actor and the person. Right? So if you watch a movie and you have um, an actor being racist in that movie, it doesn't feel like, you know, that's any reflection on the actor. Or it wouldn't feel like, you know, there would be their Twitter account would be blowing up with like, oh my God, you're such a terrible person for saying these things. Right. Whereas in wrestling, like, because it's, I guess, going back to the origins of wrestling in terms of like, wrestlers are expected to act as if it's real a lot of the time. And even, yeah. even though lots of people know that that's not true now, it's still kind of, you know, something that's subscribed to. There's the character and there's the person. And it, I don't know whether that adds an additional layer of complication that makes it harder to tell these stories in a way that is kind of res- responsible. I think that's the thing is like, it's it's so difficult. And I I guess we won't know until someone successfully does it, <laughs> like right. how these things can be done successfully. Because I feel like there hasn't really been many, of, if any, examples of, at least in mainstream wrestling, of um, issues of cases where race, sexuality, gender have been like openly dealt with in a storyline fashion in a way that is kind of satisfactory. I mean, my theory about this is that. Um... The reason it doesn't work in wrestling is that the degree of difficulty in wrestling is a lot higher than in TV or movies. And what I mean by that is that, like, take something like mixed martial arts. In mixed martial arts, the fighters have to learn wrestling, jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, boxing. And there's, unless you're a real miracle of, a, of an athlete, you're not going to be better at them than people who focus on just those things. So the best MMA boxer, like Conor McGregor, doesn't really have a chance against a real boxer like Floyd Mayweather because Conor McGregor has to learn everything and Floyd just has to learn boxing. Mm -hmm. With wrestling, like quite frankly, the best wrestling actors are just with, with very few exceptions, like maybe the rock, they're just not as good as professional actors, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a lot harder for them to pull this off convincingly because not only do they have to know how to act, they have to learn how to be super athletic and have to do these matches. And they also have to maintain the gimmick, as you say, on social media and it's just plus it's live right Right. it's not like with the exception of lucha underground which is like taped like a tv show the fact that it's live and has to change every week and you have to be open to the possibility of wrestlers getting injured and storyline changes and everything like that it's just so many things can go wrong that it's really it's really um dangerous terrain if you if you make a misstep then you're really effed in a way that you aren't for other kind of more straightforward bad guy storylines about just somebody who's rude, right? <laughs> Which is quite different from being, you know, racist or something. Um, and so, so this, this actually gets to the last couple issues, which is what is wrestling? You have a chapter on monsters yeah. which is that um, wrestling is neither fish nor fowl, a monster being something that like doesn't fit into any category, right? Like a zombie is a monster because, in some ways it seems alive, but in some ways it seems dead. And so in our real lives, we don't deal with things like that. So we react with a kind of sense of 
fear or uncanniness. Right. Wrestling, I don't think people are afraid of, but they do this thing with wrestling, which is kind of odd, which is they say, you know, it's fake, right? <laughs> and, and they never say that about like Laverne and Shirley, right? <laughs> they, they, they don't say about Alf, right? Hey, you know, he's not really an alien. Um, <laughs> and, and so what is it about wrestling that makes people say, hey, you know, it's fake, right? Um, yeah. Is it its monstrousness, the fact that it's neither fish nor fowl, and so people don't know how to react to it? Yeah, I think... I think that's right. I think that it, it presents as something that it's not, I suppose, might be one way of thinking about it, right? If you're, if you're watching a TV show or a movie, there's a sense in which, like, even though you're taken in, you suspend disbelief, there's a thought that, like, there's no trick being played on you, right? At the end of the day, you know that um, these are just actors portraying roles once you step out of the movie theatre. And I think for many people, there's the thought that, like, well, wrestling is somehow a con right like um right. it's a it's, it's it's something that is protect it's because it's presented as as a sport right the commentators treat it as a sport like uh, you know everything looks on the screen at least in terms of how it's being portrayed that there's real fighting going on and, and real um you know com- competition but it but it's really not and i you know i think that some people probably just think well look why are you why are you watching something that is so obviously like not what it is and i think that but that kind of misses the point of what of what wrestling is right it, it is this kind of this monstrous blend as it were of all these different things and i think to once you appreciate all the things that are blended you kind of think well why wouldn't you watch it right i mean it's, <laughs> it's all these amazing things like if you like if you like athletics and sports like you watch what these people are doing in the ring, right? That's incredible. If you're a fan of drama, like here's some storylines, like watch how these develop and, and see the emotion that is is kind of elicited from them. And I think it, it's something that takes a degree of, I think you have to have a degree of openness to to something unusual to really get into it. And I think that's maybe why for kids getting into it, it's, it's something that is easier because they're not, they're not thinking about things in the same kind of categorical way as we do as adults. There's, a, there's an openness to things that you have as a kid that That's you're willing, willing to engage with. And I think as an adult, if you and it's hard for me to say because I don't know anyone who never watched it as a kid and then got into it as an adult. So I guess it'd be Oh, my to, wife. Oh, okay. So yeah, I'd be interested to know like what... Yeah. So what happened with her was that I would watch it, right? And sometimes she would like look over and he was like who who's that guy and I was like oh that's Seth Rollins and she found him you know her type um and I mean not not her only type but uh (laughs) obviously I'm not at all like Seth Rollins but she was like you know that guy's got some charisma about him and then she started watching it for Seth Rollins in 2015 and at that time I think that was when Seth was at his best as a performer so in terms of just both his gimmick and also his athletic ability and uh and then she started watching other stuff and then she and then AJ Styles came in and not only AJ Styles came in in 2016 in the Royal Rumble, but I think this might be controversial to say, but I think 2016 was one of, if not the best year for WWF in terms of the in-ring product. Uh-huh. Like the level of um, the quality of the matches, I think, was better in that year than in any other year. And and so she sort of got into wrestling during that year. And then the thing she found interesting about it was that it had a fandom but it was a fandom that was relatively neglected, right? Just like wrestling can, can, can get away with things because it flies under the radar. 
she thought like, here's a fandom that on the one hand is, is pretty robust, but on the other hand, doesn't have a lot of people who have like a good critical eye being right. part of it. And so finding the people with a good critical eye was like finding diamonds in the rough. And then, you know, she kept on learning more about wrestling. So then she learned about New Japan wrestling. Yeah. And the, the level of in-ring product for New Japan is just miles above anything else, including AEW. And so, and so then she, she went to Japan to watch. Yeah. yeah, she watched Wrestle Kingdom twice in Japan. Uh, and, you know, and so she just had this incredible experience watching Wrestle Kingdom. I think it was, um, she watched it this year and last year. Yeah. And so, and then I think she's actually kind of gone off wrestling now, but she had like this five-year run with it where she got really into it. And I think it, it started out just like this guy's attractive. And then it started out, oh, there's a fandom. I can explore this and I've never heard of this. And then it's like, I want to see the, the greatest of it. And she also happened to come in a time when not only did WWE have its best year, in my opinion, but New Japan, I think, had its best series of years and of just about everybody's opinion, and not just its best series of year, but wrestling's best years ever in terms of in-ring product. And so she just came in at the right time. I don't know if that can be duplicated, but she was open enough to it. And I think also just with, with things like TikTok and YouTube and all these new ways of like presenting media, there's a kind of formal experimentation that's been happening now that lets people be more open to wrestling as a kind of formally odd thing than they would be, say, in 2010. That's yeah. my guess, anyway. Mm -hmm. So that's the only person I know who got into it as an adult. <laughs> that's amazing. It's amazing that she went to those Wrestle Kingdoms. That's... Yeah, and I never did. I stayed behind and took care of the boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, let's um, finish with identity and pro wrestling. So in pro wrestling, people have gimmicks, right? And the, the guy who, who perhaps had the best job with a gimmick was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Right. And he, he said his secret to running to having a gimmick was yourself, but turned to 11, yeah. right? And yet some other people think the most successful gimmick of all time is that of Undertaker, who is basically an undead necromancer, <laughs> right? Who is not like Mark Calloway. Mark Calloway is not an undead necromancer. He's basically a biker guy. And, um, and so there are these two extremes of like very successful gimmicks I don't think there are too many undertakers out there. There aren't too many gimmicks of somebody who's very different from him or herself, who's very successful. I mean, maybe like the million dollar man would be one like that. I don't think Ted DiBiase was like that. Vince McMahon was like the million dollar man. Right. And, and, um, but yeah, I can't think of any, any gimmicks that are that uh, extravagant that are successful right now. And I think everybody's just themselves turned to 11 yeah. And so what do you think that effect, what effect does that have on the wrestlers? Is that okay to ask the performers to do that all the time? And then we should ask, how does this relate to philosophy? Yeah. Philosophers gimmicks. Right. I mean, I think, yeah. So I think there's one, one advantage of the, like the separation between person and gimmick is that it, I feel like it, maybe it puts, I was going to say maybe it puts slightly less psychological pressure on the performers because they can more clearly separate their their show gimmick from their real person. So like The Undertaker, you would hope at least, was able to kind of make that distinction, right? So he goes yeah. home in what calorie, he gets on his motorbike and he goes home. He's not, you know, dressed in you know, like mortician's gear. But even so, I think, you know, from what I've heard with interviews with him, it's, he very much had to, at least when he was working, like yeah. get him to 
into that mindset. And that's also a psychological challenge. Um, but it, it, I think once you kind of can separate the real person from the in-ring person or the, the on-screen person, then it's, there's a bit more distance. And I think one thing that, you know, I mentioned in terms of where those things come closer together that can be difficult is like in the run-up to the Montreal screw job that we talked about before, where Bret Hart, the person, seems to really identify himself with Bret Hart, the character. And that's why there's a real challenge for him to, to lose that match to Shawn Michaels in Montreal, because right. his character is the Canadian hero and he cannot see himself losing there. And as a real person, he's kind of become so invested in that that that's kind of one of the contributing factors and i think the more the real person is encapsulated in the in the in-ring performer then the more chance there is of that person being you know i mean in, in addition to all the physical um stress that the wrestling takes on a person but the i think there's often also the mental stress of like if you're invested in you and your character then when you have to do something that you you don't want to do or your character you feel like it's not with your character's kind of personality, then that that can kind of take its toll on you in a in a different sort of way than if you were just playing this outlandish cartoon and then you could. Right. So I feel like yeah, I think I think for any success there has to be some degree of authenticity. And I think that's even even with the Undertaker, even though he wasn't literally like this undead <laughs> necromancer, I feel like there are certain aspects of his character that the Undertaker character that probably were genuine to to mark calloway the performer and then obviously when he was able to become the you know the american badass undertaker that came out a lot more but this the way that character the undertaker character developed into almost a you know a conscience style character of the company that that i feel like kind of yeah his like status as a as a you know veteran right that he's the one who comes back and and you know restores order when it needs to be restored um but yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah, this is another thing where I think like the idea of gimmicks in wrestling, I think certainly allows us to think more about how we are in our own lives and definitely as philosophers are with their views. I think we all have our own gimmicks as human beings. I think that even though it might not be like as clear cut as you find with wrestlers, I think we all put on different faces to the world in different ways. We're different people at work than we are at home or things like that. And um, I think that there are multiple facets to the way that people engage with people around them in the world that, you know, is not a million miles away from the idea of assuming a character, even though it's not so deliberate, perhaps. But definitely, yeah, in terms of philosophy, I think it's a really interesting question about, or any sort of profession where, you know, to make your name, you have to kind of be associated with a view or a position. And I think... And our, our profession also incentivizes that to some degree, right? Like you, you will get more speaking gigs, you will get a book contract, you will get promotion if you're associated as the main advocate of a particular view or as one of the leading advocates. And if, yeah. you, if you sort of like say, you know what, I don't really buy this anymore, <laughs> then, then, then people will be like, well, what do we do with you, right? Yeah. You're like a guy without a gimmick. And... And I guess your gimmick could be the person who changes his view all the time yeah. or the person who's not really sure of his views, but it's sort of there. I feel like there's a kind of pressure against that. I think philosophers find something unappealing about, about that. Like if I said, like, I, I think more and more philosophers are starting to be open to the possibility that maybe we don't have, we don't believe our philosophical theses. Right. 
because we just know too much to be able to believe them as true. And that they're, they're more like stances you take to sort of see how they figure out, like to see what happens when you do it, almost like um, ways of life or something like that. And um, I mean, we could be in a kind of sea change with how philosophy conceives of itself right now, or, or maybe not, but do you think philosophers have anything to learn from professional wrestlers about how to, how to live their gimmick or how to not be so attached to their gimmick? Maybe. I mean, so, because I, I like you, I can't work out whether the gimmick aspect of philosophy is a good thing or not. I mean, you know, I think, so for, if anyone, anyone who's watching has never been to a philosophy talk, for example, if you go somewhere and give a talk, there's, there's certain things that are expected of you, right? So you, you give your talk, you state your view, and then usually what happens is someone, you know, the audience just grills you for... <laughs> right. Hour, right trying to show you that you're wrong and what you're expected to do is defend yourself like nobody wants to see a speaker give a talk and then the first question they're just like oh that's a great question like you're right I think I might be wrong about that like that very rarely happens like you yeah at least put up the show of tr- defending what you've done I guess maybe because you want to justify the amount of time that people have invested in your talk I don't know but it's it's very, it's, there's a performance, there's a performative aspect of it, going back to what we talked about scripts and things as well, that with philosophy that you, you present a view, you're expected to defend it. It's not, not usually acceptable to just go into a discussion period of a talk with complete openness to being wrong and moving on from that, which, you know, I think is quite, is bad. Like there are times where I feel like I, what I would want to do is give a talk and then just have a fairly exploratory open discussion and be open to the fact that like I've got something wrong rather than have to defend myself against every single little detail of the things that I've said and maybe you're right hopefully philosophy is kind of changing a bit and I think this is where I think philosophy could learn something a bit from from professional wrestling which is that the there's this adversarial model of philosophy which is more like kind of amateur wrestling or boxing or combat sports where it's like you're jousting right there's argument and counter arguments and proposal and counter-proposal, like objection, rejoinder, all this sort of stuff, which is mimicking combat in a way, which is like that method of giving a talk where you give a talk and then you're defending yourself against objections. Um, whereas with professional wrestling, right, you, you, you don't have a model of combat, you have a model of cooperation where you have two people working together to put on the performance to entertain the audience. And I would kind of like to see philosophy be more like that corporate, cooperative kind of model where when you're talking philosophy with someone or when, when you're in a group setting giving a talk, like it's a collective enterprise to try to understand things better. Um, so it's not so much the emphasis on attack and defense, but more like how can we collectively come to a better understanding of things through what's been said so far. Um, and I think that in a way that kind of might dispense with the gimmick stuff in a way, because there's no pretense then that you're really genuinely believing stuff. It's more just like, okay, here's, here's a starting point for a discussion. How do we move on from this? Like, what more is there to say? But I still think, you know, you still have to get your foot in the door somehow, right? You still have to be invited to give the talk. You still have to be, you still have to get a job. You still have to, and there's no escaping the fact that pragmatically speaking, I think all philosophers have to have a gimmick of sorts to even get. Right. So I wonder if people who are able to do that more cooperative model will be people in more kind of privileged positions who, who can afford to. Well, not not everyone can because they need a job. They need a, you know, they need, um, you know, they need to gain credibility first. It's a lot easier for, you know, your stereotypical 
old white male professor, man professor to do that, right, than, than, than some other people who, who will be kind of viewed in a different way if they, if they take that sort of approach. They'll be viewed as less credible automatically because of things like right. injustice and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, um, you know, it makes me think of an improvisational comedy, right? right. Where, where the two people try to put on the most amusing scene they can and they're not expected to, to keep it to those characters the next time they do a scene. And so somebody like Andy Daly, uh, who's my favorite improviser, would get the reputation as like, you can put on a great scene with this guy, right? He's great because he can just, he's just so funny. He can spin, you know, gold out of anything. And I can imagine philosophers saying, you know, you can have a great conversation with this philosopher, right? They're the kind of person where when you, when they come to your for your university to give a talk, everybody gets really excited about ideas. I know when I, when I write philosophy papers, one of the things I find is difficult about philosophy is that there's so much cover your ass. Like you have to say, here's my position. Here's nine objections against it. Here's my response to each of these objections. And what I like to do when I write papers is to write, is to write papers that are, that suggest objections that I don't even raise because I want people to respond. And I want people to feel like here's something that I missed or here's a way in which my view is incomplete. I think kind of Nozick did that a lot in his mm-hmm. writing where his writing is almost all parentheticals. It feels like, you know, where <laughs> he'll, he'll put this view forward and he'll say, but here's an objection to my view. Maybe my view can't overcome it. And he doesn't, he doesn't, that, that's the end, right? He doesn't then try to flush it out or anything. He's like, you do it. And I yeah. kind of enjoy that. I like the idea of like, you know, not trying to cover your ass because it just makes the philosophy more tedious yeah, I, I like something that's more inspiring to read. So, so yeah. maybe that could, I mean, journal editors don't seem to agree with me. They want me to do cover your <laughs> but I mean, that's, Yeah, that's kind of the approach I went into writing this, the Philosophy Smackdown book with was, I knew I didn't want to write footnotes. I didn't want to have, you know, I didn't want it to be like a, a thing where you're trying to always like imagine every objection because you want to leave stuff to the reader to, to work stuff out. And I think it's more fun to write that way, for sure. And I think... But I also think that, yeah, you can afford to do that more in certain settings once you've already established a certain, you know, reputation yeah. and you have a book contract rather than if you're trying to write, get your first journal article published and you're trying to satisfy like two or three different referees who, you know, might all have different objections. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's the way in which philosophy is like gymnastics, right? <laughs> yeah. What determines if you win is how the judges <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, with that, I think we have to go. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, is it Doug or Douglas? Uh, Doug, yeah. I okay, so. thanks, Doug. All right, thanks. and um, I'm going to stop recording now, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed this. And if you didn't, uh, what, what's The Rock say? It doesn't matter if you enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> Okay, see you later. Cheers, Bye. Bro.